No, this is not for an ugly Christmas sweater contest here at our church staff. This is a way to talk about a favorite Christmas carol that was never written as a Christmas carol for caroling. And we'll talk about that famous Not For Christmas Christmas Carol on Wisdom 828, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Hi, I'm Bob Buchanan. My favorite Christmas carol is Joy to the World, written by Isaac Watts in 1719. But he didn't write it as a Christmas carol. Now, Watts was born in 1674 in England, and he became known as the father of modern hymnody. Watts was something of a child prodigy. At age four, he was learning Latin, Greek by nine, French at 11, and Hebrew at 13. Several wealthy people in the town where he lived and was growing up were willing to give his family tuition money in order for him to attend Cambridge or Oxford. But his father was a nonconformist, which meant that he didn't embrace the established Church of England. So the elder Watts even spent time in prison for his nonconformist sympathies. Now we turn to the son, Isaac. He eventually studied for the ministry when he attended the uh, Dissenting Academy of London. His first pastoral assignment was as pastor of Mark Lane Independent Congregational Chapel that was in London, and that was 1699. But due to a very severe health breakdown in 1712, he could no longer pastor, and he moved into the home of Sir Thomas Abney in Herefordshire in order to recuperate. He remained there until his death in 1748 at the age of 74. Now, Watts wrote more than 600 hymns and spiritual songs during his life, but his hymn writing was controversial. The congregational singing of the English dissenters of the day followed John Calvin's direction to sing only metrical psalms if they sang at all. Now a metrical hymn was a a type of hymn that had a prescribed number of syllables for each line of the stanza of the hymn. And the system then provided a means of marrying the hymn's text with the appropriate tune of music. Now, Watts grew up just unhappy with the congregational singing in the churches of his day. He complained that the songs uh, that they sang uh, were mostly dull. Uh, He was frustrated by the unenthusiastic ways the psalms were written and put to music and even sung by the church. They just weren't passionate enough to sing of the great worth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, early on in his, uh, his life, his father challenged him and he said to him, well then, young man, why don't you give us something better to sing? And he set about to do just that. Now, he was a poet at heart and he started writing poetry that was the paraphrases of scripture. So in 1707, Watts published his first book of hymns and spiritual songs and it caused a huge debate in the church. Uh, We might think of it as the 18th century's version of the music wars. Now, why were his hymns causing such a stir? Well, many of his English colleagues just simply couldn't recognize the paraphrases of the Psalms that he wrote. His hymns were called uh, derogatorily, Watts' whims and too worldly for the church. When his hymns were being sung in America by 1789, uh, the Reverend Adam Rankin told the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, quote, I have ridden horseback from my home in Kentucky to ask this body to refuse the great and pernicious error of adopting the use of Isaac Watts' hymns in public worship in preference to the Psalms of David. Well, 
Watts wasn't rejecting metrical hymns forever for congregational singing. He simply wanted to see congregations singing with more affection and devotion for Christ. He wrote in his defense, the Psalms ought to be translated in such a manner as we have reason to believe that David would have composed them if he had lived in our day. Now, Joy to the World is based on Psalm 98. Watts wrote it to celebrate the future coming of Christ, but today we sing the hymn celebrating the good news of Christ's first coming, and we're easily able to make that transition uh, from Watts's future vision of Christ's return to the coming of Jesus the first time in Bethlehem. Nonetheless, Watts urged everyone on earth to receive her king and every heart to prepare him room. But it's in the verse, uh, in verse three, that the hymn finds a real nugget of gospel-centered truth for encouragement. This is what he wrote. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Now this line picks up the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to reverse the curse that God pronounced on all humanity because of our rebellion against him. The curse was the bad news, but the good news is that God would send a Messiah in whose work of atonement, the curse of sin would be removed from us. Christ's victory over sin extends as far as the curse is found. Now God pronounced that curse in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree that was forbidden. God first cursed the serpent who deceived the couple and then God cursed Eve and then Adam and through Adam, all human beings. All creation was placed under the curse and the curse is God's righteous judgment on sin and the effect of the curse is death. So we have to ask, how far does this curse extend? Well, you know, it's all around us. It's everywhere we look. Its malignant infection is reported on the evening news every single night. It touches every atom, every molecule, every square inch of creation. The curse is on everything in creation and it's resident in every human heart. How then can we sing joyfully? Well, that takes us to how God put the curse into reverse and the key is found in Galatians 3, 10 through 14. First, Paul reminds us about the bad news of trying to reverse the curse from, you know, from within our own moral capacity. We all have a sense that we don't measure up to God's standard. And we try desperately to do something about that uh, by obeying the law. And Paul says this, those who depend on the law to make them right with God, they're under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written by God's, uh, in God's book of the law. And so it's clear, he said, that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law because the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law that says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. Now what Paul is saying here is that if you want to find acceptance with God by pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps you're driving down a dead end street. No one, no one has the moral capacity to earn God's salvation by obeying his Old Testament law or the 10 commandments or the golden rule. It's simply not enough. It's simply not possible. 
Now you know the feeling of not being enough, right? Uh, you may have heard it all your life, or you may have even said it to yourself. I'm just not good enough. I can't do anything right. And you've had plenty of people who would agree with you, and a lot of experiences to confirm it. But even if you think you're good enough, if you are anything less than perfect according to God's standard, you're kidding yourself. So why give us this impossibility if it doesn't give us acceptance with God? And the answer to that question is what brings joy to the world. It's Christ. Paul goes on and says this, but Christ has rescued us from the curse of pronounced by the law. And how did he do that? When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles, that's you and me, with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Christ took the curse, the curse of God. He actually became the curse for us. We couldn't lift the, the curse off our backs or work our way out from underneath it, but Christ didn't just take our curse, he became the curse for us, receiving the full measure of God's wrath for sin. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now this Christmas, when you sing this Christmas carol in church or with your friends or your family or you hear it on the radio, remember that you're singing the gospel of freedom from the curse of God to yourself. And so, sing it with all the gusto of, of a joyful and free heart. Well, that's all for today. Thanks for joining me and thanks to Steve Dion who partners with me to bring you Wisdom 828 where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time and Merry Christmas. <laughs>